You know, holiness has its own spectacular beauty. In Psalm 96, verse 9, the psalmist writes, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Someone has said this about the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness is the only beauty which God cares for in our public services. And it is the one beauty for which no other beauty can compensate, end of quote. That being said, there's a fact that we as the body and bride of Christ have to face. And the fact that we have to face is we're not home yet. We are on enemy turf. And whereas holiness may be the harmony of heaven, holiness is the ugly duckling of earth, at least to unredeemed persons. Holiness is hated by the majority of persons. And this is because the world system that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything is working consciously, insidiously, to conform us to its image. And the image of the world system that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything is not the image of God, nor is it holiness. Holiness is at war with popular culture, and popular culture is at war with holiness. Let me just give you some examples in case you wonder if there's a war going on between popular culture and holiness. What about the immodest Junkanoo costumes we see each year? What about the push for certain vaccinations for females to prevent sexually transmitted diseases? The push for that in some quarters is for girls that are very young. What about the fact that in the United States this morning that 13 states do not have any requirement whatsoever for parental notice or parental consent for a girl to get an abortion? There is a war going on between holiness and popular culture. What about the businesses we read and hear about in the news all the time now that are being sued and eventually put out of business for refusing to sell products or services to gay wedding ceremonies? What about politicians in my country, Canada, who are pushing hard to legislate the Bible to be hate literature? Popular culture sees God's holiness as an ugly duckling. Popular culture is at war with God's holiness, so conversely, God's holiness must be at war with popular culture. That being said, what is holiness? What are we talking about when we talk about the concept of holiness? It needs to be clear in our minds this morning that what holiness is, is living as someone who is set apart for God's possession and use. That's holiness. Holiness is being set apart from the world that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything, being set apart from sin, being set apart from self, being set apart from Satan, being set apart for God's possession and God's use. That's holiness. Being set apart for God's possession and use on enemy turf that hates holiness. Holiness, of course, is God's will for every 
blood-bought, born-again, converted child of God. If you are saved, you do not have to wonder, pray, ask anybody else if it's God's will for you to be holy. It is God's will for all of his children to be holy. We can be grateful this morning for God's word is found in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, to be more specific. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. The reason that we can be especially grateful for this passage this morning is it gives us concrete, practical incentives to be holy. Practical encouragements, reasons why we should choose to live holy. There are several, five spiritual incentives in this one paragraph. Let's take them one by one. And so the first incentive in our verses for us to live holy is the glory of God. The glory of God is a prime incentive for you and me to choose to live holy. Verse 13, 1 Peter 1, please. Therefore, gird your minds for action Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ here is the second coming event. The second coming event that will end the seven years of tribulation and commence the thousand year literal kingdom rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth we call the millennium. When Jesus Christ comes that second time, to end the tribulation and to start his kingdom, he'll come visibly, he'll come bodily. No one on earth will miss the fact that he has returned. That will be a revealing of the glory of God when Christ returns the second time, his second advent. And this glory of God, this looking forward to this event of Christ's second coming, ought to change how we live now, and specifically, it ought to change how we live now relative to our personal holiness. Let me just uh, make a far-reaching, overarching truth statement. Have you noticed that outlook leads to outcome? That outlook leads to outcome. Let me just illustrate with Abram and Lot. Do you remember Abram and his nephew Lot? They looked over the vistas of the land. Neither one owned any part of it yet. And Abram said to his nephew, you pick the land to the right, then I'll take the land to the left. You pick the land to the left, I'll take the land to the right. So that's the setting here. And we know from scripture that Lot chose for himself the good land. He looked over the two options and he saw the land that was better and he says, I'll take that. That was an outlook which led to some sad outcomes. That outlook for Lot led to an outcome of living a self-life in the land that he picked. Specifically, a self-life that was characterized by idolatry. It was so bad that he approved sodomy and all kinds of vile sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife, Mrs. Lot, turned into a pillar of salt under the judgment of God. Contrast that with Abram's outlook at that same juncture. When the land was before both of them, Abram's attitude was, you take what you want, I'll trust God for what's left. Abram entered that land and lived a life of faith. He lived a life 
of worship. Two examples how one's outlook determines one's outcome. Here we stand on the first Sunday of a new year. What's your outlook? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What are you working for? Your outlook will go a long ways in determining your outcome. And so going back to the text, as we look out for Jesus Christ's second coming in 2018, we will take actions that will lead to personal holiness in 2018. <laughs> I can remember when, as the eldest child of my parents' children, I was put in charge of my sisters. I was put in charge of the house. I was put in charge of the lawn. I was put in charge of the outside grooming of the house while they went away on business or some other reasons. They would go away and leave me in charge of all that stuff. I'll tell you one thing, when I figured out what Sunday night they were returning, we got really busy on Saturday. We got making beds, we got doing dishes, we got the yard trimmed and, and hedged and mowed and all that good stuff. You see, my outlook to see my parents' return was imminent caused my outcome to be in line with, I, with what I knew what they wanted, what they expected of our family when they were gone. So it is when we consider the surety, the verity, the um, predictability that Jesus Christ is going to come back. We don't know when. He's coming back, though. As we look at that as our outlook, the glory of God is found in that second coming return of Christ. It will change the outcome of any given day, of any given month, of any given year as we sojourn here on earth waiting for a greater reward. And so verse 13 again, therefore gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this uh, term, this word picture of gird your minds for action, I think it's lost on most all of us because we don't dress like first century persons dressed at the time that the New Testament was written. At the time the New Testament was written, both uh, men and women dressed in the same kind of a smock that had a hemline down near the ankles. They were cool in the hot temperature. They were cool uh, clothes to wear. But the problem with those kind of clothes with hemlines down to the ankle meant you couldn't really run. If you ran, you'd be stumbling on what you're wearing and uh, it would slow you right down. And our sisters in Christ who wear long dresses can vouch for that still being the case, probably. What this verse is saying to the first readership and to us by extension is gird your minds for action. Pull the hem of the robe that you are wearing as it were, pull it up, hold it up, gird it up and run to holiness. Run to holiness. And what you see, it starts in our minds. Therefore, gird your minds for action. How's your mind? <laughs> the world's attack on personal holiness is largely an attack on the Christian's mind. Let us run to holiness this year. And so... The prospect of Christ's second coming and his revealed glory is an incentive to live holy, 
Just before we move to our second incentive, would you, if you are taking notes in your outlines, would you write beside the first point the word action? You'll see why later. Action. The second incentive for us to live holy is the holiness of God. The holiness of God himself ought to be an incentive for each of us to choose to live holy. Verses 14 and 15. As obedient children do not... Be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Of course, we know from the first verse of the Bible to the last verse of the Bible, we know that our God, our God is perfectly and constantly and thoroughly holy. He is totally set apart from anything that is less than holy. It is impossible for our Lord and our God to sin. Impossible. And all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been adopted into God's family. God the Father is our Father through adoption, we are His kids. And we can and we should bear a family resemblance to the Heavenly Father in all matters, including the matter of holiness. He is a holy Father. We should be a holy children of the Father. He hates sin. We should hate sin. He discerns evil. We should discern evil. Our Heavenly Father in heaven is holy, and we who are his adopted kids should also be holy And it's the Father's holiness that ought to be a real incentive for us to live holy. Let me read these verses again. 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. And I'll stop in the middle of that verse. There are two things I want us to see in verses 14 and 15. Two things. We are obedient children of God when we are holy. To say that we are obedient children of God and to know that we are not holy and do nothing about it is not to truly be an obedient child of God. This tells us that holiness is always a choice that we can make. No one can throw up his hand and say, Lord, did you see what happened to me at the office this week? I had no choice but to be unholy. None of us can say that with any credibility. Holiness is a choice that is always set before us at every turn, and we have the power in the person of the Holy Spirit and the obligation, according to the call of Scripture, to choose to be holy every time. It is an obedience matter. It is a choice matter to be holy. The second thing I want us to see is in verse 15, the second part of the verse, but I'll read the whole verse. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also. Watch it. In all your behavior. In all your behavior. This tells us that there ought to be no such thing between secular and sacred in the living of our lives. There ought to be no such thing as Monday through Saturday living versus Lord's Day living. 
There ought to be no such thing in our lives as the non-religious matters and the religious matters. There should be no such thing in our lives as don't bring Jesus into that versus he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. No dichotomy. No schizophrenia, spiritual schizophrenia. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Before we move on to the third incentive, would you write a word beside the second incentive, which is the word choice? Choice. Now we go on to verse 16 uh, to see our third incentive for holy living. And this incentive is the word of God. The word of God is to be an incentive for our holy living. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The little phrase here in verse 16, it is written, is a phrase that appears many times over in both the Old Testaments and the New Testament. It is written is saying what follows the phrase it is written is a quote of scripture. In this situation in 1 Peter 1, verse 16, what is being quoted is the Old Testament verses of Leviticus 11.44, Leviticus 19.2, and Leviticus 27. Those verses are being quoted in verse 16 when they say, you shall be holy for I am holy. Obviously, God is speaking those words. And the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to quote those Old Testament book of Leviticus verses on holiness tells us, reminds us of the huge and the effective incentive that the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures give to us to choose life that is holy. Listen to just three of a whole lot of possible Bible verses which speak of the Word of God being an incentive to holy living. You ready? Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119 verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep thy word. For sure, the word of God is a great incentive to holy living. Warren Wearsby has made this little statement concerning the word of God. Learn it, love it, live it. When it comes to the scriptures, learn it, love it, live it. The word of God is a tremendous incentive for us to live holy lives. To recap, so far, you've written action beside the first point of the sermon, which is the glory of God being an incentive to holy living. Then you've written choice by the second point in the outline, the point that holiness of God is an incentive to holy living. And now I'm asking you to write command beside the third point in your outline, which is that the word of God is an incentive to holy living. 
And now we go to the fourth point of our passage as it relates to incentives to holy living. And it is this point, the judgment of God is an incentive to holy living. The judgment of God is an incentive to holy living. Verse 17, and if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. There is a judgment for born-again believers that will occur after the rapture of the church, but before the end of the tribulation. We will be in heaven having an evaluation before Jesus Christ while persons on earth are suffering tremendous uh, wrath of God, judgments of God, cataclysmic events in nature, etc. And this judgment seat evaluation of Christians often is called the bema, which is the Greek word which translates judgment seat, the bema in the common courtyard of ancient uh, cities of the New Testament time was a rostrum, a podium, where athletes would come to be rewarded for athletic prowess, and uh, civic judges would come and make civic uh, judicial decisions at the bema. Well, the bema here is going to be a future time event for all the redeemed that will stand before Jesus Christ, who will impartially judge the quality of the motivations for our ministries rendered in Christian service while on earth. And tying back to 1 Peter 1, 17, it's time of impartial judging, and it's a judging according to each man or woman's work, and it's a time for fear, that is reverential attitude toward the judge that will lead to holiness of choice in earth before we face him at the bema. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, it says, for we must, it's obligatory, for we must all, it's uniform, nobody misses, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Bema, that each one were judged one by one, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is not the future judgment of Christ at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. That judgment is for sentencing to degrees of punishment in hell for those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. But this Bema judgment is an evaluation, and it's the prospect of this evaluation of our redeemed Christian lives, efforts, and works on earth that should prompt us to choose holiness now. 1 Corinthians 13, 10 and following gives us a little more detail into the same Bema evaluation judgment that's coming for Christians. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it, but let each man, there it is again, each man be careful how he builds upon it. That's what this is calling us to care as we do our Christian service. Carefulness. Let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work, Christian service, 
will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality, not the quantity, the quality of each man's work. So you and I will stand individually, have our own time to stand before the judge Jesus to evaluate our Christian ministries, our Christian services, all the times that we were on earth. And some of my Christian service will not stand the test of fire. It'll be wood, hay, and straw, and it will be burned away and will not have anything that merits a reward because of those acts of Christian service. On the other hand, I pray that some of my Christian service will be standing the test of fire, gold, silver, precious stones, and Jesus will give me some measure of reward. Think of that. He saved us. He indwelt us by his spirit. He gave us spiritual gifts. He gave us stamina to be faithful and obedient. And then even, think, even the grace upon grace of all that is he will choose to reward some of our Christian service that was done with proper motive. Amazing. But coming back to 1 Peter, we're saying and noticing that the judgment of God, the future Bema judgment seat of Christ for Christians, ought to be an incentive for us to choose to live holy lives now. 17. And if you address his father, the one who will impartially judge according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so we're moving along, and beside this point, the fourth point in your outlines, would you write the word evaluation? Evaluation. And so far, to recap, we've seen four incentives to holy living in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. Number one, the glory of God. That's verse 13. This points to action. Number two, the holiness of God, verses 14 and 15. This points to a choice. Number three, the word of God, verse 16, this points to command. And number four, the judgment of God, verse 17, this points to evaluation. The fifth and the last incentive, at least in this passage, to holy living is in verses 18 to 21, and it is the love of God. The love of God is an incentive for us to choose to live holy. Verses 18 to 21 knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's a pen and ink drawing that I have in my study, and uh, it means a lot to me. You could see it in many different ways, uh, but today I'd like us to consider this, that the loving shepherd who is holding the little lamb in the crook of his elbow is God the Father. And God the Father is tenderly holding the little lamb the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from eternity past, there's been unbroken tenderness and intimacy and love between the Father and the Son. But then the Father 
willed it and the son willed it, that that close intimacy was broken in a very jarring way. That the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to be homeless, to be rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That he would go to the cross of Calvary willingly. The Father willingly sent him. And there on the cross as he bore our sins upon himself, that estrangement that made him cry out, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think about that lamb. I've had occasion to hold a lamb in my arms. And some lambs are very calm and affectionate and they can do well with that. But others aren't. But if you have a lamb that's inclined to take that kind of human attention, then you can even have them become almost like a pet in your house. I want us to think about the Lord Jesus leaving the Father's cradled arm and the Father letting the Lord Jesus leave his cradled arm to go to the cross. That is love. And that kind of love of God for us will best be a motivator to holy living to the degree to which that we reflect on it. And this table is served this morning as an act of obedience to Christ who told us to do so. It's a memorial table. It reminds us of the sinless life of Jesus, the bread does, and the cup reminds us of the uh, sin atoning blood of Christ that has been shed. And the Lord gives us this ordinance so that we will periodically and frequently pause to think about the great love of God that caused Jesus to go to the cross and the Father to send him to the cross. This is how holy living is motivated by God's love. When we understand that God loved us, then we are only logical and reasonable to love God back. And when we love God back, we make decisions to do with being holy in how we live our day-to-day living. You do know that God's love is always first. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We need to reflect on that. Verse 19 of 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Just to wrap this up, the the glory of God, that's action. The holiness of God, that's choice. The word of God, that's command. Uh, The judgment of God, that's evaluation. And the love of God, that's reflection. Some of you will be acquainted with um, A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor and writer in the mid um, 20th century. And uh, he was known for his uh, direct, plain, uh, oftentimes unpopular assessments of the church. And this is what Dr. Tozer wrote uh, in part from uh, this world, playground or battleground. In these early days when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground. Our fathers believed in sin and the devil and hell as constituting one force. And they believed in God and righteousness and heaven as the other. These were opposed to each other in the nature of them forever in deep, grave, irreconcilable hostility. 
Man, so our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. For him, it must be life or death, heaven or hell. And if he chose to come out on God's side, he could expect open war with God's enemies. The fight would be real and deadly and would last as long as life continued here below. Men looked forward to heaven as a return from the wars, a laying down of the sword to enjoy in peace the home prepared for them. Sermons and songs in those days often had a martial quality about them or perhaps a trace of homesickness. The Christian soldier thought of home and rest and reunion, and his voice grew plaintive as he sang of battle ended and victories won. But whether he was charging into the enemy guns or dreaming of war's end and of the father's welcome home, he never thought, he never forgot, rather, what kind of world he lived in. It was a battleground, and many were wounded and the slain. That view of things, unquestionably the scriptural one, allowing for figures and metaphors within which the scriptures abound, is still a solid Bible doctrine that has tremendous spiritual forces at play. How different today, though. The fact remains the same, but the interpretation has changed completely. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight, we are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land, we are at home. We are not getting ready to live, we are already living, and the best we can do is to rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full. This, we believe, is a fair summary of the religious philosophy of modern man, openly professed by millions and tacitly held by more multiplied millions who live out that philosophy without having given verbal expression to it. That this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted in practice by the vast majority of evangelical Christians. They might hedge around the question if they were asked bluntly to declare their position, but their conduct gives them away. They are facing both ways, enjoying Christ and the world too, and gleefully telling everyone that accepting Jesus does not require them to give up their fun and that Christianity is the most jolliest thing imaginable. The worship, in quotes, growing out of such a view of life is as far off center as the view itself, a sort of sanctified nightclubbing without the champagne and the dressed up drunks. That jolted me when I read it. Perhaps it jolts you. We started this message on the holiness of God to remark together how beautiful God's holiness is. And I just want to give you some concrete examples of the beauty of holiness when Jesus Christ is on the throne of the heart of a redeemed person. The person who puts a what would Jesus do filter on their television watching. The person who makes time for the Bible and for prayer no matter what in a day. The teenager who honors God on her dates. The senior citizen who refuses to complain or to enter into gossip. The woman who works at cross trainers on Tuesday nights, always after a hard and demanding work day. The boy who chooses Sunday worship over Sunday baseball practice. The girl who obeys her daddy and mommy in matters that her friends, frankly, think are silly 
The person who puts a what would Jesus do filter on their Facebook usage and on their YouTube viewing. The person who prefers to give rather than to receive. The man who shares his faith in Christ, not caring what his non-Christian co-workers will think. The woman who tithes to her church when she at the same time is not exactly sure if she'll be able to pay all of her bills. The man who doesn't judge the Sunday worship songs, but rather heartily sings all of them. The teenager who tells the cashier that she gave her too much change at the cash register. The person who wants church unity more than being right. The person who is more quick to forgive than to demand their own rights. The person who gives their best to the Lord without holding back. The person who would rather serve than be served. The person who loves the Lord more than anything or anyone else. The persons who love their neighbors as much as they love themselves. The person who lives their life as an open book not only before God, that's automatic, but lives their life as an open book before others. The person who would die for Christ if they were called to do so. The beauty of holiness. It's a beauty that we pick. It's a beauty that we choose. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and grace to give us incentives to live holy. Your glory, your holiness, your word, your judgment, and your love. Help us, Lord, to be a congregation that is individually and corporately marked by us being set aside and set apart from what a world system would call us to be or to do so that we would be for you, that we'd be wholly yours, that our choices would be in line with your character and your word, and that we would be a blessing in a world that needs blessings. We ask these things, grateful for your willingness to help us to be holy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.